get to tackle Bob's favorite subject tonight. In fact, I thought about asking him to be guest speaker. Thank you for, for thinking of you. Yeah. I'm not going any further. <laughs> well, you'll notice none of the other elders signed up for this one. In fact, they kind of ran from it like a bunch of cowards. And uh, But, you know, that's a another discussion for another time. So we're talking about the doctrine of election tonight. And uh, now it makes sense, doesn't it? The doctrine of election um, goes hand in hand with predestination. And uh, it's something that um, uh, scares people to death. It's, it's something that bothers people. And a lot of it has to do with uh, failure on the part of leadership in our churches over the last 100, 125 years uh, in not doing a good job of teaching the, the truths of God's Word like we should. You know, we uh, pastors have this, uh, have a little bit of a cowardice streak, a yellow streak running through them that, uh, you know, rather than tackle some of the hard issues, we'd rather just. Uh, pass them by and deal with the things that are, that are easier. Some of it has to do with the rapid turnover in our pulpits uh, going back for at least the last 50 years to 60 years where, you know, we just kind of had this built-in mechanism where uh, a pastor would stay at a church, you know, if he was there for five years, that pretty much was the, the duration of his time and everybody felt like it's time for him to go. You know, the freshness is off, the... the uh, Romans off the rose, all those good things, time to move on and let's get a fresh start. And, and that's not a biblical uh, way to look at things. And, and honestly, the first, first portion of my ministry, I didn't know any better myself. I, I thought that, uh, you know, the, uh, looking at those opportunities, it made, it made sense, logically speaking, uh, to go in where you could start fresh with things. But you miss out on so much that way. You miss out on growing together as... Uh, as pastor, as leadership, as church body. And it also means that you don't have to deal with some of these hairy, difficult topics and subjects that are in the Bible. That, you know, a preacher can work out enough sermons to, to last for, for four or five years without having to deal with some of the difficult ones if he chooses to. And, uh, uh, but, and the other side, that's another reason why. Uh, you've heard me say that I believe in expositional preaching, taking a book of the Bible and preaching from beginning to end, and you do that systematically through the Scripture, that then you have no excuse. You can't avoid the certain subjects that are in there. I remember in, uh, I think it was 2008 here, uh, was probably the first time I dealt with this subject, um, preaching through First um, and Second Thessalonians. And, uh, I mean, right out of the gate, the first ten verses of First Thessalonians, the, the text says there that, uh, you know, God chose us. And so, um, I, you know, didn't have any choice but to deal with it. But I remember it, it created quite a bit of a stir. <laughs> Sam remembers. Um, Sam's still here. Sam's still here. Amen. <laughs> he hung in there. There's some that are not. Um, I'm chosen. <laughs> I don't remember. Maybe a second. Anyway, you know, it's there as big as life. And so I shared, and I shared, I shared honestly and transparently about my own struggle and journey in this area about not having experienced the kind of in-depth teaching growing up in church life that dealt with these hard topics, uh, these hard doctrines, and, uh, and just adopting things that are uh, put out there that, um, you know, kind of pacify us. You know, we find uh, ways to explain things away to avoid getting into having to deal with it uh, in all of its struggle. You know, there's a lot of struggle. There's a lot of mystery in some of the doctrines of Scripture. And so I shared that with the church, thinking that, you know, I'm, it's not important that you be where I am today on this understanding. It's important that you give yourself to the journey, that you give yourself to the struggle, that you let God uh, teach you things, and that you be open to that, 
and not close to it. Uh, because what we do is we, we kind of get a, we get things in our mind, you know, that we've learned early on and it becomes a traditional mindset rather than a word-driven mindset. And then when we see something, and, I, and I'll just tell you, um, I've had this discussion many times. Maybe I've had it with uh, in here and you, you remember it. And if I am, you can stop me. But uh, what happened to me was that I grew up in a typical Southern Baptist church and I'm not bad-mouthing Southern Baptist, I'm not bad-mouthing any denomination because it's, it happens across the board in lots of churches because we choose the easy route. But I grew up with a set of beliefs, a, a framework of beliefs that had been crafted by someone, you know, at some point in time. These are things that we get, and, and they've got holes in them, and they've got places where they don't really work together. And, and so, but I had, I was adamant I knew this, I knew this, I knew this, and if you asked me, I could give you the answer by rote because that's the way I learned it, okay? And uh, what happened was when, when God put me in the, uh, in the pastorate and I knew that I wanted to be an expositional preacher, that I, I felt like preaching expositorily through the scripture was the way to do it, it made sense to me, and that all sounded great in theory until you start doing it. And then when you start doing it, what happens is you begin to come across things that you're studying and, and dealing with, and you go, you know what? This passage, as I'm understanding it now and studying it, this is challenging something that I believe over here in another area, you know, where maybe I was relying upon proof texting, you know, to believe what I believed. And so it really began to challenge my systematic theology and about how I believe things, how my, how my framework for beliefs actually fit together and and it wasn't working it was like putting round pegs and square holes lots of times and so I had to, I had a choice to make I had two options one is that I could just say you know what I'm gonna gloss over it and keep going and I'm not gonna deal with this and and let it fall where it will you know or I'm gonna have to dig a little deeper and I'm gonna have to start working hard so that this framework of theology begins to make sense and work together, that it's consistent and not contradicting one another, okay? And so that's what I chose to do. I believe that was my responsibility is to best understand Scripture as God has written it so that I can communicate it. And in that process, God began to challenge things that I thought I already knew and show me that I didn't really have the proper understanding of them. And, and I'm not all the way there today. There's still things, there's still holes in your understanding, and there always will be because it's so vast and so complex what God has given us that we could spend, we're going to spend all of eternity probably trying to understand it. I don't know if we'll ever have perfect understanding uh, of God because that's what we're trying to do. But in that process, at first I was very uncomfortable with it, and then I began to make sense of it and understand that I, God was showing me some things that I needed to know to grow in and, and to become a better uh proclaimer of truth and so that led me to do these things these things and these things and then one day you know all of a sudden you're having a conversation with somebody and he calls you, you know, a Calvinist or he calls you you know some name and you go no I'm not one of those well the things you're saying you believe well now you got to go back and figure that out and say well, I don't like labels. I think they're unfair. I don't. I think when you start using labels, then you have to define what they mean and diff different meanings. But you know, when you start going back, then you have to go back in the history of Christianity and start looking at these guys and saying, what did they believe, and what they believed does it match what I believe? And beyond the labels and things, that that's not even important to me. What's important to me is that that I'm a biblicist. I want to believe what the Bible teaches. And I believe that there are some strong people of the faith over the past generations, like a John Calvin. I think he's been stereotyped in an unfair way. That uh, his, his enemies or the people who didn't like what he was preaching, the people who were offended by it, you know, began to characterize him in a way that was unfair. Now, I'm not saying he was perfect, but I'm saying he was one of the greatest expositors of Scripture that, that uh, the church has ever had. And, and so... You look at that and you go, well, you know, I'm okay. I'm okay identifying with the way he 
taught, the way he understood things, and most everything that he believed, as far as I can tell. Uh, and then you get stereotypes and misunderstandings that people have. For instance, after that infamous sermon back in 2008, someone accused me of being uh, a Calvinist. And I said, all right, you know, I guess I can wear that as a badge of honor. Uh, I'm not upset by it unless you tell me that it means something really distasteful. Uh, but most of the time they can't tell you what that even means. You know, they're just throwing out something they've heard somebody say and we're supposed to be against it. You know, um, but then the same person came back two or three weeks later with a printout, you know, computer generated printout, and it was about this thick and said, now, right here's a guy that I can get behind his theology, and you need to read this. And I said, okay, and I'm looking at it, I can't really make any hide or tail of it, and I took it and was trying to be, you know, pleasant, and walked into my office and put it down. A little bit later, I picked it up and got to read it. Well, it was, it was about Charles Spurgeon. And I said, look, Charles Spurgeon put the C in Calvinism. But Baptists, Southern Baptists, don't see it that way. They don't see them as being the same because they've never read Charles Spurgeon and they've never read John Calvin. They've heard it on a radio or they've heard from some preacher from the pulpit say, this guy's bad. You can't believe that. And, and it's still going on today. There's still witch hunts taking place. And, and I wish we could get beyond some of those things because we're not doing ourselves... Uh, a good service you know there's plenty to learn from a lot of guys I don't agree with I said years ago you probably can't find anyone that I'm going to be 100% in agreement with all the time there's always going to be some some things that we will differ on but do we agree on the main things and you know we have to agree on the major doctrines you know of how a person's saved who Christ is uh, who God is and and if we can't agree on those things, we got problems. Then some of these other secondary issues, secondary issues, which is usually where people get in trouble and, and separate, uh, are things that maybe are important, but we can afford to disagree on them, you know, and let the Lord clear it up when, when the time comes. I say all that to say that election is one of those doctrines that frightens people because of some of the implications of it. Um, they don't like it. Uh, I, I accuse us, and I'm speaking about myself, all the time of being control freaks, and we are. We all want to be in absolute control of everything. And election and predestination is the greatest offense to that mindset. You know, that's saying that God's in control and God's in charge of everything. You can talk, and I've talked to a lot of Christians through the years, that will claim to believe in the absolute sovereignty of God, and they will argue with you till the cows come home about whether election and predestination are valid doctrines in the scripture or not. And I'm going, how can you do that? If God is sovereign, how can you claim that he's not sovereign? You say he's sovereign, but then you're saying he can't be sovereign. Either he is or he isn't. Uh, and, and to believe that he's not sovereign means that he's not in charge of things. And most of us would never say that out loud. We don't believe that. But when it comes to election and predestination, we believe... We want to reserve the right to have this control over this decision to believe on Christ. Uh, and, it, and the more you spend time in the scripture studying it, you find out that unless God does something in us, we're not capable. We're not prone to. We're, we're prone. We're bent. Being sinners, being a, having a fallen nature means we're bent away from God. That left to our own devices, we're always going to go against God. Always, we're enemies of God. Unless God enters in and does something in us first, we have no potential to believe on it. And that's what Scripture teaches. Uh, but that's just very hard for people to get their minds around. So that's the heart of the election thing. It, I think last spring when I preached uh, in John 6 and, and talked about this, I called it the most hated doctrine. Uh, I stole that probably from, uh, I want to say it was A.W. Pink or someone, uh, but, you know, it's, it's a common understanding of the doctrine. Most people say that it's the one thing that will get people's ire more than anything else. Eschatology is probably the more passionate discussion that people have and argue about. But election and predestination, it, it gets ugly real quick. And uh, so, all that said, we'll try to plow through some of it tonight. And... You know, the thing I want you to understand is that if you're not all the way there, it's okay. Ask your questions. 
You know, all I want is for people to be open to try to understand it the way the Bible presents it, the way God wants us to understand it. I'm not saying I've got it all clear. I'm a lot closer than I used to be, and I want to be more consistent with, with all the aspects of it, and I think that's something that comes with time too. But, but if you're not open to what God's teaching you, you know, then, then you're selling yourself short. You're hurting yourself and those you have influence with. And um, so anyway... The, uh, the outworking of God's saving grace on sinners begins long before individual sinner experiences the benefits of that grace. you believe that? Mm -hmm. Scripture says that the work of Christ was completed before the foundation of the world. Before creation, the work of salvation, the work of atonement had already been completed. Uh, I've said countless numbers of times that God never begins anything that He hasn't already finished. You know, that when he sets out to do something, it's already completed as far as God's concerned. From his perspective, it's done. You know, because he's eternal. And so when he sets out to do something, it's going to be accomplished. And there's nothing that happens outside of his purview and outside of his control. Before the sinner's conversion and justification, before the Savior's substitutionary atonement, and even before the creation of the world itself, God's redemptive grace has its origin in eternity past in the sovereign counsel of the will of the triune God. 2 Timothy 1, 8 and 9 says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. In sovereign freedom, solely, out of the overflow of his loving kindness and grace, God set his love on particular individuals, chose them to be saved from sin and death, purposed that they would be restored to a right relationship with him through the redemptive work of his Son applied by his Spirit. Therefore, both the Son's accomplishment of redemption and the Spirit's application of redemption are carried out according to the Father's eternal plan of redemption. We, um, we can't argue it's hard to argue. I mean, we try, I guess, but it's impossible to argue with some of the statements that Scripture makes in this, in this regard. For instance, Ephesians 2.1. You've heard me reference this many times. What's, I won't ask you to quote it, but what's it about? What does it say? Dead. It says we are dead. In our trespasses and sin. Dead, last time I checked, you know, the common definition, dead means no life, right? If you've got no life, that means nothing's working. No breathing, no brain activity, nothing. You declared dead. God has declared all of us who, who are sinners, which all of us are coming into this world, we're born sinners, and being sinners, we are dead in our trespasses and sin. If you're dead, you have no capability of doing anything about that, do you? I've shared the story numbers of times about, you know, this is the only church I've ever been in that didn't have a mortician in it. Every church needs a good mortician because, you know, they have the best jokes. But um, I had a mortician years ago telling me a story about going out on a late call to get a body. He comes back. He had... You know, he was the only one that night. He was by himself, which was unusual. Two o'clock in the morning, he comes back. He said there was an old cat that hung around the, the morgue all the time and um, that he went to open the door and the cat evidently gotten trapped inside and when he opened the door, it ran right between his legs. And he said, it scared me. And he said, I hit the gurney. The gurney flipped over. The body <laughs> fell on the floor, on the concrete, and there we go. And... You know, yeah, you laughed. It was funny. I laughed a little bit. But I had a more important question for him. I said, what did the body say? What did it do? Did it get up and get mad? Did, you know, and he said, what are you talking about? I said, you know what I'm talking about. What, what did he say? And he said, he didn't say anything. He was dead. I said, thank you. That's all I wanted to know. I'm going to use that from now on in my preaching because dead means dead. 
the body got there because he knocked it over. The body couldn't get up on its own. The body couldn't respond. The body didn't do anything but lie there. It was dead. There's no life in it. And God says we're dead in our trespasses and sin. So the very idea that we can wake up one day and decide that we are going to believe the gospel in and of ourselves without any help is ludicrous. It doesn't fly. We wouldn't, we wouldn't think of any dead body doing that any time in our culture. But yet, when it comes to spiritual things, we, we do believe that. And we'll fight for it very often. That, well, I decided. Or, you know, Arminians believe that, that you have enough, that God gives you enough grace, enough ability, capacity to choose if you want to believe or not. Well, that's not dead, is it? You've got some capacity there. So what we understand about the, the process of salvation is that God has to initiate it. God has to do something to give us the capacity, the ability to receive the gospel. In fact, Scripture kind of tells us that the Spirit of God has to regenerate the heart first. That actually we're changed on the inside first. Then comes the outward manifestation or witness to what's taking place on the inside. So when someone walks down and says, I want to put my faith in Christ, the reason they do that and have that want to is because God's already really changed the heart. Right? Mr. Theologian? <laughs> See, we, we. But what is election? Election, Grudem says, is an act of God before creation in which he chose some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. Before, if, if this is creation, and this is now, Somewhere back here in eternity past, God, the triune God, determined what creation history was going to look like. <clears throat> and for his own purposes, he determined that man would, would be given, that sin would come into the world. Now, I'm not saying God created sin. I'm saying God ordained that sin would come into the world. And that man would be fallen and that God himself was going to come be incarnated in the world and die and rescue perishing people. And in that process, God also chose out of all the people that would ever live, those who would be his elect, those whom he was going to save. This is where people start getting a little bit antsy. Well, what about those he doesn't choose? He doesn't choose. He set his love, he sets his love on particular people. He did it with a nation with Israel, did he not? Out of all the nations of the earth, God set his love on little weak Israel. He said, these are my people, this is my beloved. And that began the process of him doing his work in all the world. It's just that we've got this mindset that everybody ought to get a fair shot. Well, if fairness is what we're after, then judgment is the answer to that question, right? The judgment of God is the only fair thing to do when sin has come into the world and creation. Because we violated God's standard and expectation. Are you saying that God is a respecter of persons? Where he shows favoritism to certain people and not to others? Yes. Why would he do that? Because he's a creator. He's God. But God, God loves God to want to create people and make them to reject them. He has every power to, to make them alive like he would make a person who's predestined or elected, I should say, to be alive. Why would he do that? It's a good question, Russ. What, does it, what benefits? What does that, what does that show God? 
That's a great how, question. How do we reflect his love? He doesn't tell us. And how can we reject God? It says in the Bible we reject God. If we're a curse, how do we reject? That's, that's an action too, as much as believing. We've rejected God by our sin. And the scripture talks about people rejecting God. Well, we come into this world rejecting God. We're in enmity with him. By rejecting the gospel, I think it says that. How do we reject the gospel? Because that's an action of you know, corpse can't, like you said, can't believe, but a corpse can't reject either. Romans, Romans 9 says, Jacob I've loved and Esau I've hated. I know that. So he clearly sets his favor on certain people. Like you can't argue with that. I mean, I'm not trying to defend it. I'm just telling you this is what the Bible says. Um, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exer exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, that by my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. I mean, yeah, I'm not saying it's easy. No, no, no. Um, I, see both, I see both situations. Well, sure, we all do. Because part of it is we want to see that. We, we, we have a hard time understanding because we're looking at it from a human perspective, through our prism. You know, why, why would God set his love on some and not on everyone? You know, his redeeming love, you know? Makes me think of the lesson we had, I guess it was last week, common grace and spiritual, uh, spiritual grace. I mean, if there are those that are chosen that are here to provide for those who have been chosen, you know, in some regard. To uh, show their expertise, to do the invention, to do the progress, um, and that the whole world can take advantage of, um, and so they they help the world keep spinning, if you will, even though they're not saved. Right. They never receive the saving grace; they have the common grace. I think the you know the the way to look at this is that uh, one way that helps me is to understand that. Everyone who comes into this world has already, in essence, chosen to rebel against God. So the fact that he chooses out of that, he's going to save some in spite of everything, you know, is all on the grace of God. What's that? He didn't have to save anyone. He doesn't. He's not bound to save anyone. By all justice, if we want to say God's just, everyone should be judged in spite even of his love, because love without justice, without his righteousness, is, is permissiveness. Justice without the love is, you know, is, is uh, a, a wickedness in itself. But his love and his justice are in perfect tension with one another. And I, you know, there's such a mystery there. I mean, it is hard for us to get. All we can do is take what he says in his word. saving everybody and then there's offering salvation to everybody. There's a difference there. Does you know, God offer salvation to everyone? Yes. But does he save everyone? Obviously no, because some people aren't going to get saved. Well, so but, offers but how would you define offer? Pardon me? If I woke up and say this man's dead and I'm going to offer him a drink of water, but he can't take it, so is that really well, offer? the theology of being dead and you can't drink. That's why I'm saying the analogy breaks down because it's just an analogy. I mean, a dead person, like I said, you can, you can reject, you can choose. A dead person can choose today. If he's dead in Christ, he can still make choices. He can but still he, reject. He chooses. He, he does make a choice. But, people can repent. But he can't, can he can't make a choice unless God gives him a capacity to make that choice. I think that's the point. Well, Christ spoke to many people who the Father had not chosen for him at all and talked to them, but the Holy Spirit never entered them and they rejected him because they were spiritually dead is what my understanding of it is. And but but he did not he still spoke to the, Yeah, the there, there is a general call of the gospel that goes out there. Right. That, yeah. You know, people hear all the time. I yeah. mean the, the 
probably people in all of your lives that you know you wish would be saved and they've right. had opportunities and you can't understand why they don't right. um, they don't have ears to hear Jesus said in John 6 the message that we, we talked about from uh, back in the spring was uh, on John 6 44 that uh, no one comes to the Father except the Spirit drawing well, I think when you say, like, you know, if he offers it to everybody, but only some accept it, then that's making it to where the choice is within us. Like, we have that. Yeah. Like, we can choose salvation, or we have power over whether or not we come to Christ, and that's taken the power away from God. I mean, you have to understand, like, God's sovereign, and, you know, he I guess I don't see that taking the power choice. away from I mean, it's you're not saved by your by your own choosing. You're saved, you're saved by God. You're saved because we believe. Believe right, on Lord Jesus God Christ, but we'll be saved. So. So. But who gives you the ability to believe? If you're dead, if you're dead in your I sin, guess, I guess. I mean, I don't know. I mean, did you choose to become a Christian, or did God choose you? You know, it says we've decided to follow Jesus. That's a decision we make. That's been preached as far as long as I can remember that there was always a decision to make, and a person is offered the gift, and he doesn't. I, I'm not. I'm not uh, arguing with that. I do think that that man has a responsibility in the process. But what I'm saying is that he doesn't initiate the process. He can't initiate the process because there's nothing in him that wants God until God gives him a desire to want it. Well, that's where rebirth comes from. Right. You're dead. Before we express that belief, yeah. So we're saved even though we're denying him in life, we're already saved? No, no. Wait a second, though. You're saying we already, we're already Well, no, you're, you're implying that someone over here that's going to be saved is living for themselves right. and that they're already saved. Well, they're part of God's elect, so they're going to be saved, but the salvation hasn't occurred yet, no. Okay. That what, what you've got is you've got, you know... Yeah, I know, and it's and it's not easy. Okay, I, I don't want anybody to understand, and I'm I'm not trying to be flippant with any of this because I know it's it's hard to sort out. Um, human pride, human pride makes you want to think that this decision is entirely mine. I'm in control, and it's you know the, the, the sin of pride is what drives so many of the world. All of it. one of the most difficult one thing. I've ever tried to understand is that separation of free will, your pride, your wanting to be in control, your wanting to take credit, if you will, that I'm in control and I made the decision, it was mine to make, and I feel good about myself because I made that decision. Right. Struggling with all of that internal pride thing against what role was the Holy Spirit? Don't see it as pride. I, again, I'm not looking at that perspective, but I'm looking at being grateful that the offer of salvation was made. Well, the, and that's exactly the right point. That when someone comes to Christ, it's not because I decided to come to Christ; it's because He came right. looking for me, right, just he like He did Adam and Eve in the garden. Exactly. They ran he's, from. He's him. pursuing. He's pursuing. Right. And that's what I'm saying is that unless He pursues, you're not going to repent and turn to Him. Is that fair? That's fair. And, and that's that's what we're saying. We may not be saying it well here, but okay. that's what we're trying to get at. Right. Salvation begins with um, God making a decision that he's going to save. Election. Um, the gospel call. Not necessarily a general call that Someone sitting in the midst of hearing, you know, the gospel being proclaimed, but a specific call when the Holy Spirit begins to work, particularly in a person's heart and life, which then moves into regeneration. Conversion. Justification. Adoption, 
equation. Perseverance. Now, all this is what happens in our lives that God, God brings to pass. Two through six happen quickly and almost simultaneously from our perspective, from our view. But there's still an order here. Make sense? There's still an order that takes place. There has to be a gospel call that's specific to the person. There's regeneration, which the Holy Spirit initiates, and conversion, where the person then realizes a new desire, a new desire for God and not for the path I was on. And so what has taken place inside is manifested outside. That's where they make their profession of faith, where they had... They give testimony that I want to follow Christ, okay? Now, these things may be just like that, you know? But there's still, it's got to begin with God. God initiates it. Justification where God declares us righteous, adopted into God's family. All that stuff happens the moment a person is going from lost to being in the family of God. And then, of course, sanctification is worked out over the course of the rest of the life here. Perseverance is a part of that, which God is leading this person to stay the course. Then physical death, entering into the glorification where we're like Christ. Okay? Difficult. These are difficult concepts because we, we are blinded in many ways by, by our own limited understanding. You know, we see things through our way. We see things in terms of what we view as fairness and unfairness. And, you know, with God, there is no unfairness. Everything, the only unfairness with God is his grace, you know, and mercy. The fact that he doesn't judge us immediately. That, that he delays judgment in order that he may save some. So, you know, an analogy... It's not a good, no, no analogy is good. They all break down, as Russ said. Um, a ship goes down, it's got 100 people on it, and they're perishing out in the middle of the sea. And you got a lifeboat, you know, and you, or you got a small helicopter, and you got a chance to save some. You can't save them all. Now, this doesn't work for God. God could save them all, but He doesn't. He doesn't. But He chooses some that he can save. He brings them with him for his own reasons, his own purposes. But in the end, none of us deserve to be saved. That's the point that Audrey made. The scripture is very clear about that. We're all sinners. We've rebelled against God. We deserve his judgment. The fact that he saves anybody is the miracle in this thing. This is the great news. The fact that he doesn't save everyone is what we want to get hung up on and get concerned about and you know, what, what I came to believe, one of the best books I've ever read on this subject was by a guy named Michael Horton, who's a um, professor at Westminster Seminary out on the West Coast, uh, who wrote a book called Putting Amazing Back into Grace. And, and, and he does a great job of, of uh, making the argument clear, or he did for me at the time, um, that I can't understand it all. You know, I don't know why God does all the things that he does. I, I'm, I'm very grateful that he set his love upon me and saved me and called me out. We don't know who is part of the elect and who's not. So we, we can't sit here and try to figure that out. Our job is to go and make the gospel known to all people, believing that God will save whomever he's going to save, he will. But our job, he clearly says, is to be faithful in proclaiming this good news that God does save. And then God sorts out who's going to be saved, whom he's chosen to save. And I don't know how else to argue with that. I guess it's a struggle for me. You go out and you preach the gospel and you invite everybody in a service to accept Christ, be it you know in your heart, and not 
everybody's part of the elect. It seems a little. But I never think that way. And that's what my point is, is I don't think we should think that way. But the scripture clearly but says... You, but that, you know that, though. Well, sure. You know but, but it's not for me to worry about. But you don't know who, so you still have to... Yeah, I can't sit there and go, well, Russ is part of the elect and Bill's not. I'm not saying you know who, but if you, how do you say if you... But see, it helps me with the gospel. How, how do you ask people to believe the gospel? Is it a generic statement? It's not a... No, I treat, I treat every person as if that person is part of the elect. From my perspective... That's all I can do is say, here's the gospel, believe on him and be saved. But what it does is it sets me free from anything else. Is that what happens then is up to God and God alone. It's not a choice. It wouldn't be that choice if you, if, if, if people, it wouldn't be that choice the other way around either. Because if you offer, if you preach to everyone and you offer them salvation, if they were to believe, it still leaves it up to them because well, they can believe or not. It does, but what we've done is we have abused that through the years, and what we've done is that we try to manipulate people into believing because we think we have that power yep. and that we can convince them to Maybe come on over to the side. Well, we, we don't offer salvation to anybody. God does. We tell them. We tell them. We, we tell them about the it. Offer. We've been commanded to tell them about it, right. but we're not told that when we proclaim the gospel that we're proclaiming just to the elect, we're proclaiming to all people. Yeah, my assumption, my assumption is everyone I'm speaking to is part of the elect. It's God's prerogative to work that out as to who is and who isn't, not mine. My job is to preach the gospel to whomever will, to whomever will listen. Right. To God be the glory. And, and also, I don't know that someone today who's listening and not listening may may come to may be part of the elect, but not for ten years. That's right. You know, that's right. That and I think that's the point here that's important for us is this is God's God's plan. God's working it out. We have certain responsibilities. And back back years ago, before this kind of settled into my heart, and I I understood what God was doing and what He's saying in His Word about these things, I believed and and denominations and churches push this and I think they that's where I'm saying there's been a lot of abuse through the years you know well you know if I didn't have somebody to baptize this year in my church I'd go out and pay the first bum I could find to come in and be baptized <laughs> well what are we about are we doing the Lord's kingdom work or are we trying to ring some bells you know and pat ourselves on the back of what, what we've been doing and that's where we we err and, I and I try I never grew up in that atmosphere well but there's a lot of that yeah, well, there's a lot. There's a lot of that goes on. Most of us do, but I look at this and I go, you know, there was a time in my life when I was a, a seven or eight year old boy when, when God moved on my heart. I didn't know all of these things. I, I didn't know how this worked. I just knew I'd been hearing the gospel. I'd been taught the gospel. I knew the word of God was proclaimed and taught in Sunday school and Bible, vacation Bible school and worship. And one day. You know, things suddenly began to change in me. I began to realize that I was a sinner. Whoa, seven or eight years old, you're going, wow, I'm a sinner, and God doesn't like the condition I'm in. Well, I don't like that. Well, you know what? Before God moved, began to move in my life, I didn't care. I, it didn't really bother me. You know, I didn't listen to it. I didn't hear it. But when God began to move, suddenly I had ears to hear what he was saying. My heart began to turn toward him I didn't create that he created that in me and for that I'm eternally grateful you know I, I had nothing to do I was a dead man and he came and resuscitated me he came and resurrected me from death but he did it yes did I cooperate yeah as he gave me the ability the capacity I cooperated you know there's a mystery there of what my responsibility was but I acted on what I did at the right time but if God didn't call me and give me, uh, what is it, uh, efficacious calling, which means he gives me a calling and gives me the ability to respond to that calling, it doesn't happen. Now, your question earlier was, what about those people that he doesn't do that with? Well, he says here in Romans that that's not our concern. You know, we, can't, we can't ask the potter as a piece of clay what did you make me for this for? You know, why'd you do this? 
Well, that's not our call. That's not our question to ask. We just have to trust God that he has his purposes and his reasons, and they're right and perfect. They're not in our world. They're not in our view of things, but they are in his world. And that's the hardest thing for people to grapple with in all this is that there's some that aren't chosen because we think that's just unfair. But as Aubrey pointed out, what's unfair is that God saves anybody. We all deserve his, his judgment, and none of us deserve grace by definition. <coughs> <clears throat> it's not it's not easy let's uh, let's look at a few scripture verses um, Kyle if you'll take Acts 13 48 uh, Bob if you'll take Romans 8 28 through 30 you want one Judy uh, Kevin if you'll take Romans 9, 11 through 13. Phil, if you'll take Ephesians 1, 4 through 6, and then verse 12. 4 through 6, and then verse 12. Um, Daniel, you want to take one? Uh, 1 Thessalonians 1, 4 and 5. Audrey, 2 Thessalonians 2, 13. Um, Russ, if you'll take Revelation 13, 7 and 8. And uh, Sam, if you'll take Revelation 17, 8. Okay. All right, Acts 13, 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began to rejoice and praise the word of the Lord and all who had been appointed for eternal life believed. What? That last line said what? All who had been appointed for eternal life believed. Mm. Okay. Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So, we quote 10% of the sentence. <laughs> he foreknew, he predestined, and then called. Yes. And then justified. justified. And then he will glorify. So, you know, this, this is God's golden chain there in, in Romans 8, 28 through 30, where he, he maps out to us the, the way of salvation, how this happens. Foreknew is back in eternity. He predetermined, yes, how it was going to happen. All the things that would happen, God, has, God saw them and knew them. Now, <clears throat> one, of the, one of the pat answers that I was taught early on when you talked about what is predestined, predestination well that means that God saw what you were going to do well but see that makes you God that makes you makes God reactionary to what you decide to do and that's that's an antithesis of the sovereignty of God that we see in scripture when I was talking about Stephen Lawson earlier uh, he made a statement about that he said God doesn't learn anything yeah he knows everything, so there's nothing for him to learn about anything associated with foreknowledge or what you're going to do or any of that. So we can back up all the way to creation and say, well, you know what? Why did God even permit sin to occur? Why He could have stopped it. He knew it was going to happen. Why didn't he stop it? He didn't create it, but he used it for his purposes. And, and I don't remember who I heard say this once upon a time. Nothing's ever original with me. It came from somewhere. But um, they said, well, what if what God was doing in that time was forever neutering sin, you know? Hence, Corinthians says, taking the sting out of death. Uh, a bee, once the stinger's gone, it's dead, right? <clears throat> so God allowed sin into this laboratory so that he could forever destroy sin and its its impact. 
that always, before sin came to be, there would always be the danger that man would rebel. But once man rebelled and God chose for himself a people out of that and redeemed them the way he wanted to redeem them and set his love on those people, sin is now forever defeated by Christ and is not making any comebacks. And so now that, that relationship of love between himself and, and his creature is now safe from any intrusions from sin, any violations to ever separate us again. We're changing our minds. Huh? We're changing our minds. <laughs> so what not we want to be saved? Yeah. In verses 31 to the rest of Romans 8. Yeah. Talks about how this can happen. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, it, it. we've all seen it. You know, I've seen people. I, I've seen people who have been raised in atheistic, agnostic kind of situations at home, and they grow up with all the arguments against God. They're dead set against it. But God begins to work in them. God begins to work and draw them. There's nothing, there's no inclination in them to seek God until God starts to draw them. And you can see it happening. And, and I believe, I believe that you can take a hardened sinner or you can take a, a sinner who's not hardened or doesn't appear to be hardened and, and when they start having these discussions and asking these questions about these things, that's a hint that's a clue about what's getting ready to unfold, I think. I think God is doing something in them. And he's going to save them. He's going to bring them to Christ. I think he does the same thing in believers when he puts people on our hearts, when he gives us a burden for people who are lost to start praying for them, to start witnessing to them. I believe, I don't believe God is in the business of tormenting us. I believe he's in the business of working alongside us and showing us his love and setting his grace upon us and through us and using us to bring people to himself. And so he intends to honor those prayers. So we, we need to be sensitive to those things. But anyway, you got the next one? Yep. Uh, yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob, I loved, but Esau, I hated. I mean, this one, you know, rocks people's world. That's not in my Bible. <laughs> it is. <laughs> it's in there, buddy. Well, we have to the the real story's in there, and Paul's using it as an analogy about <laughs> what he's talking about. <laughs> he had people having the same questions that you have, Russ. People still struggling with this and saying, well, you know, why would he do this? I don't know. I don't have all those answers. I don't know, but, but here's what we know. We only know what we know, remember? And what we know is that God is the creator. He's the maker. He's providential. He is sovereign. He can do what he chooses to do. And it's right. It's right. It's never wrong. We, we believe that about him. So if he's chosen to set his love on some at the exclusion of others, who are we to question that? We can't. We don't understand it. We only see what we see. And it's very limited compared to a God who's as vast and powerful as, as the God that Scripture portrays, reveals to us. One day maybe we'll get to understand all that. But right now all we know is what he's given us to know. And yes, sometimes it's quite confusing. There's a mystery there. There's, there's some um, things that are not quite. And it could be that the, the things that, I mean, you go back to, um, you know, the Canaanites. I mean, people stumble over that all the time. Why did God have his people go in there and wipe all those people out? Well, the closest thing we know is that they were descendants of Ham who had the curse put on him by Noah because he looked on the nakedness of Noah. Now, Bible scholars tell us that there was more went down that day that Ham saw his drunken father lying there. It wasn't that he just stumbled in and saw him lying uncovered that there could have been some sort of violations, sodomizing, something that went on that Noah knew when he woke up something wasn't right. And, and for that reason, Ham was cursed, and therefore all his descendants went with him, and that's why God judged them uh, in Canaan. But we don't know that. We don't know. We, but we do know we're all fallen in Adam, and we deserve God's judgment. Uh, Phil? According to this, he hath chosen us in him the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestined in 
Jesus Christ that you sent according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. 17, you missed it. Uh, no, 12. 12. That we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. Okay, 1 Thessalonians 1, 4, and 5. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. You know that, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Second Thessalonians 2.13 but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Revelation 13, 7 and 8. It was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. 17.8 The beast which you saw once was, now is not, and will come out of the abyss and go to his destruction. The inhabitants of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world will be astonished. Uh, when they see the beast, because he once was, now is not, and yet will come. Okay, Bill was right. We're not going to get done. <laughs> but listen, this this is not easy stuff to to uh, get your mind around. There's all of us have issues with. It. I still have issues with. It. There's still aspects of it that I don't want to like. Okay, but. I'll tell you this, that what God did has done in my life over the last 20 some years of this journey I've been on, 25 years, 30 years even, where he's been bringing some of these things to light in my life, is that he's given me uh, a, uh, a new sense of uh, the ability to worship him <coughs> that I never had before because there was a part of that that, you know, there was a part of me before when I thought that, you know, well, I got my life together, I got my act together, I made a decision to follow Christ, and yay for me. There is there is some of that in there, in that decision. You know, Bill was alluding to that earlier, that there, there's some of human pride that says, well, you know, I, I, I made a decision to get myself straightened out. I knew I was on the wrong way, and I, and I did that. Uh, so we kind, of edify, we kind of glorify ourselves uh, in that thinking process, you know, make, make ourselves the hero somewhat. But when you come to the place that you realize that, man, I was dead and destitute and lifeless, and I had no hope. I was, I was out cold drifting out there in the ocean, ready to perish, going down for the last count when he reached under and pulled me up and resurrected me and has given me new life. It changed my whole approach to worshiping him that, you know, he gets all the glory now. I mean, it really did was a change of mind for me. But what I would say to you is that there were a lot of agonizing. Now, I'm pastoring at this time, okay? And so I'm having to stand up and preach and teach, and, and I'm struggling with this. I'm struggling with some of these monumental issues, and it was hard going. And there were times that I was just angry with some of the things that I was finding out, and, you know, my whole... My whole systematic theology was crumbling right before my eyes, you know, because some of the key por not all of it was wrong, just key portions of it were crumbling. And that brought down the whole foundation. But what I learned through that is that be patient with God. You know, he'll be patient with you. And just keep asking him to show you, you know. Keep studying, keep reading, keep learning, and, and know that he'll bring you to a place where you can be comfortable in in what some of these things, how they fit together, you know, and they will make more sense than maybe they might at this particular time. Don't just throw it all out and give up on it and walk away from it. I, 
I came close a couple times just saying, you know, I've had it. I'm done with this. This is just it's too crazy. But you hang in there, and there's great reward in that struggle. I think that's another thing that we Christians sometimes minimize or miss is that there's a great benefit for us in suffering for Christ and in struggling with Christ, struggling in the truth. You know, that if it all comes real easy, you know, we tend to just kind of scoot right along and we, we get a little bit full of ourselves. But that struggling makes us dependent upon Him and it makes us be patient and wait upon Him to speak into our lives and to show us these things. You know, I, I now plead with God, you know, week by week as I'm getting ready to preach and things like that, Lord, if I don't understand this correctly, I'm okay with you making me uncomfortable if you can help me understand it better, you know, because I have a responsibility to communicate this. So please do what you need to do in me so that you can use me more fruitfully moving forward. And, uh, and I think that's, that's good wisdom for all of us to practice in our daily lives is, you know, keep, keep growing me, keep showing me, you know. We never get to a point where we can say, I've arrived, I've got it all mastered. <laughs> Just never do. I thought when I started in ministry, I'd get there. That by this time, after 30 years in ministry, I would have, I'd know it all. I remember sitting in my office the first week I was on staff at the first church I served in, and I was sitting there thinking, a couple things had come up, and I said, you know, I don't know anything. I'm sitting here, I'm, I'm a pastor on this church staff, and I really don't know anything. I thought I knew it, but I didn't know anything. And I remember sitting there going, I can't wait till I get a few years under my belt so I know things. And here I am 30 years later, I'm still chasing it. Still chasing it. So don't, don't give up to it. That's the enemy wants to whisper and get us to focus on things and say, well, I, I can't do it. I don't want to do it. Um, stay the course. It's very, the, the, the fruit is, is sweet as, uh, as God shows us things and teaches us things. So. And share your struggle with somebody else. Help keep it yourself. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, because... You know, I mean, there was a time going back years, I wouldn't have shared this with anybody. But at this point in my life, I'm going, you know, what have I got to, you know, what have I got to lose now? You know, <laughs> preacher doesn't know anything. Let's get rid of him. Okay, you know, that's <laughs> all right. I've been without jobs before, so so hang in there. We'll go at it again. We'll take up there next week. And now we're behind, right where I like to.